Okay, I think that's all by way of announcements. Uh, I would now invite Godfrey Moyer to come and read today's scripture, and then I will be back for today's teaching. We're reading Acts 4, 31 through 37. Much shorter, too. Uh, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerful, so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Uh, so, <laughs> I don't think there is any topic uh, that a pastor wants to talk about or congregants want to hear about less uh, than the topic of giving. Um, maybe sex. I don't know. Uh, by show of hands, who would rather talk about sex today? Anybody? <laughs> um, too bad. We're going with giving. Uh, talking about giving and talking about money so often... It does set off this kind of visceral thing inside of us, uh, and frankly, for good reason. You know, First uh, Timothy 6 tells us that money is the root of all kinds of evils. Uh, the idea just being that money really does exacerbate any wickedness in the heart of a person or a corporation or nation. Uh, if you are greedy or lustful or addicted or fearful or angry or manipulative or work-obsessed, money is going to make all of those things worse. And I think we just kind of know that, and so that makes us uncomfortable. Uh, but the other thing that makes us uncomfortable is we uh, need to be real about this. Uh, many certainly have the perception that pastors and church ministries and organizations uh, just want money. And unfortunately, that's not a wrong perception. There have been churches and ministries uh, that, have, that really need to own their failures and manipulations because, frankly, over the years, uh, my heart has been broken uh, seeing those kinds of failures and manipulations, mostly because those who do not use uh, resources well uh, really do discredit the message of Jesus when they, uh, when they take advantage of people. And so uh, we need to, oh, as churches, as organizations, that needs to be owned and understood and addressed. And so for me, uh, as a pastor of this church, talking about money, uh, it means I need to be conscious of all of these things. It means that I need to address the reasons why people don't trust churches, uh, don't trust giving money to churches. Uh, and I need to also spend time trying to present reasons why you should trust this church uh, with giving and with money. And I don't have the time to unpack that fully with you. Uh, I'll just say this. Our church has gone to great lengths to ensure that we have uh, proper safeguards in place so that all resources are used well. Uh, you could take our membership class and you could find out maybe some of those safeguards, some of the things that we're uh, ensuring to do in, in order that we are ensuring that we're using God's uh, resources well. But all around, all this together, I'm saying all this just to say, giving and talking about money, it does make us uncomfortable. But I want to propose that it doesn't need to be that way. Talking about giving and generosity does not need to uh, 
keep us um, distant or cause us to shy away, but rather the topic really ought to produce joy in us. Why? Because if you are here listening and you are a Christian, then generosity and giving is actually an act of worship no less than singing or hearing God's word or spending time in prayer or being in community with others. And when done from that posture and with regularity, those acts of worship we know cease to be these burden-filled practices, but rather they're joy-filled practices where God reveals to us the depths of his love and his care for us. Imagine if giving produced for you the same kind of joy that comes from singing a beautiful melody or hearing a Jesus-glorifying sermon or spending time with friends who encourage you in your faith. What if giving did that for us? Uh, If you're not a Christian and you're listening uh, today, glad that you're here. Uh, But I would encourage you to consider, what might it mean to understand the Christian's understanding of giving and consider why, over the course of history, Christians have been some of the most generous people. I hope today that you see why giving and generosity are joys that can be experienced by you as well. So with all that said, uh, we're going to be today continuing our series in Acts, Extraordinary Through the Ordinary, uh, and I want to consider today extraordinary generosity. And I want to do that by essentially giving you three takeaways for today. Three things that I want us to be mulling over as we leave today. The first would be this. I want us to see that generosity is a command that we're given. I want us to then take a look at some principles for generosity and giving. And then finally, I want to take a look at the reason why we should be generous. All right, so first, uh, let's understand what the Bible has to say about giving and generosity through the, uh, through the command of generosity. Uh, it's at least worth noting that across uh, church history, Christians have always been extraordinarily generous throughout church history. Christians have always been leaders in caring for the poor and building schools and hospitals and sending relief to devastated regions. Uh, we, we see this all the way back at the very beginning of the church. And for every uh, misappropriation of funds, there are 10,000 stories of faithful uses of resources to care for others. Plus, financially healthy churches actually contribute a lot to the overall health of communities. Uh, In a study that was done by a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, he asked the question, uh, what's the church's economic worth? And in this study, the study found that uh, one calculate, once one calculated uh, contributions from the church and how the church utilized those resources, it found that the church was actually far more valuable to the community than just what they had actually taken in within the congregation. Uh, so what I mean by that is a church, through their programming and their investment in local economies and the overall benefits that a church provided the community solely by their presence, they were often economically far more valuable than what the money that they actually had generated was. So, for example, uh, they noted a church in Philadelphia that had a church yearly budget of about $265,000. But when you considered their programming and all that they contributed to the community, they actually had created a value of about $1.47 million within the community. 
They called this, in the study, they called this the halo effect. And they found similar halos amongst many other churches. Healthy, community-oriented churches are really good for the community. Generous Christians supporting the work of the church really does have reverberating effects out into the, into the neighborhood and into the community. Now, to our passage, as you can see in our passage today, the early church was incredibly generous, and it made a significant impact in the community. In fact, as we see, the church was so generous that many were selling off their land and selling off their homes so that no one in their community was in need. The Christian community was so interwoven with one another that they sought to ensure that everyone was cared for, much like a family cares for one another. But with all of that said, uh, and while that sounds like a, a beautiful gesture, I can imagine that many of us are thinking, well, what then is expected of Christians today? You know, should Christians be selling off all their possessions and distributing those resources? Well, the short answer to that question is no. That is not the expectation. However, Acts 4, and we also saw this back in Acts 2, though those, uh, what we're seeing there is not a normative practice for all of us, there are really important implications for how we understand giving. And while we're not commanded to sell everything off, this passage is very in line with the rest of the New Testament's teaching on giving. And so what I want to do, I want to try as best I can to present to you, in short order, the New Testament's understanding of giving and generosity. Now, I know that there are uh, a couple of different approaches that Christians tend to take. They're, these are kind of the polar opposite ends of the spectrum uh, when it comes to giving. But here's, I'm going to present those two to you. But I want to say now that I don't actually find either one of these perspectives sufficiently biblically nuanced. So I hope to maybe give you a bit more of a nuanced approach. But <clears throat> there's basically two approaches that I've, I've heard Christians give to how, we ought, how Christians ought to approach the topic of giving. And the first approach is this, on one end of the spectrum. The approach is simply that Christians are required to give 10% of their income. Maybe you've heard that before. But I actually find that perspective to be insufficiently biblically nuanced. Uh, now, the other end of the spectrum is that Christians are not required to give 10% of their income. But again, I would say I don't find that to be completely sufficiently biblically nuanced. And so what I want to do right now for the next few minutes is shoot for some clarity to give you that biblically nuanced understanding of giving. All right, so let's start here first. Where does this whole notion of 10% come from? If, if you've been in church for any length of time, I guarantee you've heard about this concept of 10% or what some would call the tithe. Well, the tithe, to give you a little context on that, tithe was the Old Testament practice uh, through which God, uh, God's people gave a minimum of 10% of their income to care for the poor and to support the work of the temple and its ministry. And in many cases, people actually gave far more than 10%. They uh, often give up to 25% of their income uh, for this work. But those resources, they were given for a specific purpose, which was temple ministry. 
And what's important for us to understand is what the temple ministry was. In a lot of ways, the temple ministry was a lot like a, a social security system. It was a way of caring for those who otherwise would not be cared for. It was a, the, the ministry of the temple, one of the ministries of the temple, was to ensure that people had the basic provisions for life. So the question then becomes for the Christian, now that we are not in the Old Testament times, but now we're in the New Testament times after Jesus, are we still required to give at least that 10% of our income? And the short answer would be no. I don't believe we are. The practice of tithing in the New Testament is only mentioned a couple of times, and none of those times is ever actually given as a command. Rather, it's always referencing the Old Testament practice. Plus, the closest equivalent to the Old Testament temple that we have now in our minds is largely the New Testament church. And so the argument could go, some do argue, that uh, the church, which in our case would be Redeemer East Harlem, uh, is the temple. And so that 10% of one's income must then go to Redeemer East Harlem if that is your church. However, that assumption assumes too much. The reason being, again, is that the temple was this social security system of the day. Today, the New Testament church does not serve nearly the same kind of role that it did back then. The people of God do not support the church in order for us to become that social security type of system to ensure that people have all the basic provisions that they need. That's not how the New Testament church works. And so in this way, the New Testament church is not like the Old Testament temple. And so I cannot, in good conscience as your pastor, tell you that God commands that you give 10% of your income to your church, Redeemer East Harlem. I don't think there's nearly enough biblical warrant for me to say so. However, with all that said, I know that some are probably thinking, phew, that was a really easy sermon on giving. I was expecting something way worse. Uh, I'm sorry, we're not done yet. Uh, because while the New Testament does not command a 10% tithe of us, the New Testament does set a different standard for Christians and their giving. And what is that standard? Well, that standard is not a percentage, it's not a number, but rather it's a posture. The New Testament standard for giving is the posture of sacrificial giving and generosity. Let me show you what I mean. So first, as we've already noted in our passage, it's pretty, pretty clear that Christians were very sacrificial with each other and generous, having sold off their major assets, then giving those assets to the apostles to then distribute well. But let's consider some other key passages within the New Testament. Uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus tells us that we uh, ought not be concerned about storing up treasures here on earth, but that we ought to invest our resources in kingdom work. Uh, in Luke 22, Jesus commends a widow who did not give out of an abundance like others had, but she gave out of her poverty, which uh, he says means more than anything that the wealthy had given. Uh, in uh, Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul commends the Macedonians for their giving of their gifts to his ministry. And, and then in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul gives the most robust perspective on giving. 
In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Christians are called to give voluntarily, to not give, uh, to, to not give reluctantly or under, under any kind of compulsion. But he goes on to say about giving that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And then back in uh, chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul also goes on to say about the giving of the Macedonians, he says, For a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Over and over again, the New Testament ethic on giving is giving sacrificially, generously, and with great joy. And for the purpose of using resources, not for our own gain, but for kingdom work, the only work that will, in the end, reverberate in eternity. And so with that said, again, you might be wondering, what then am I supposed to give? And the answer to that question is, I don't know. I don't know what you specifically are supposed to give. I don't know. But what I do know is that there are several really important principles for us to consider when we are thinking about giving. And so I want to give you four principles in particular. The first principle we've already said is that we are called to be generous and sacrificial. Uh, the general rule of thumb, you know, for many people as they think about giving, uh, is that whole idea of giving 10%. Now, again, as I said, that is not a command. But I actually do think it's a good baseline, helpful kind of number on where we could start. Because I realize that for some, maybe that whole idea of giving 10% is something that you need to aspire to. Because right now, you cannot imagine being able to give that much of your income away to kingdom work because you genuinely just cannot afford that. And so maybe that's something aspirational, that 10%. For others, maybe 10% is it very well might be your max as far as what it means to be generous. Maybe that is your sacrificial number. But for others, 10% of our income is a drop in the bucket it would be nothing, and it's not nearly sacrificial enough. Uh, have you ever heard of um, reverse tithers? These are people that give away 90% of their income and they live off 10%. Why? Because for them, they've realized, well, that's the line of sacrificial giving for them. Uh, and by sacrificial, please hear me, I don't mean irresponsible, but I do mean giving that changes the way that we live our lives a bit. Giving that forces us to think about how we go about living our lives. Which leads me to the second thing that I know about giving, the second principle. Is that giving also needs to be intentional. So going back to 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says there about giving, he says that each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Meaning, think about it pray about it, and then make a decision about it. In 1 Corinthians 16, Christians are told that each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, 
so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. The point being there and what Paul is talking about is, listen, plan it out. Plan what you are going to give and then set it aside. Don't wait until someone comes along to have to get it from you. Just plan on that being that which you're going to give. You will not be able to be sacrificial or generous unless you plan it out ahead of time. It's part of what it means to give sacrificially but responsibly. Plan. Be intentional. The third principle that I'd put in front of you is very related to the second, but it's the Old Testament's idea of the first fruits. Uh, the first fruits was giving the best of the best to the Lord. Uh, it was not leaving the leftovers for him. And in an agrarian society, it basically meant don't wait for the bottom of the barrel offering, but rather to give first because giving to the Lord recognizes the importance of the Lord within someone's life. Right, the first thing we spend our resources on often show us what the most important things in our lives are. It's the thing that has taken the priority in our lives. Uh, and if we are going to be sacrificial, generous people, givers before the Lord, then waiting to see what's left over again is never going to work. So again, we must be prayerful and we must be intentional and then give first before we do anything else. The last thing, fourth thing that I would say, fourth principle, uh, is that we ought to give where the Lord leads. Uh, give where the Lord calls you to give. Now, as I said, I cannot in good conscience tell you that you must give uh, your full gifts to the local church. All right, so I'm not going to ever try to get anyone to give all of their gifts to Redeemer East Harlem. But I would say that you should strive to be part of a church that you feel confident in supporting in that way. Uh, for those who consider Redeemer East Harlem uh, your church, as part of the local church, you are part of the kingdom ministry happening here through our church. Uh, and as a result, it ought to be a priority to give to the work of the church. Uh, and we hope that there are those who are here and are part of our church community that believe in the work that we're doing and as a result want to support the work that we're doing. Uh, but more than that, more than I want you to give to Redeemer East Harlem, I want you just to give generously somewhere. Give somewhere that is doing the work of the Lord wherever that might be. Be obedient to the Lord. Be intentional. Be sacrificial and just give. And if you believe that Redeemer East Harlem is uh, the place that you believe God is doing work, then give generously to our work here. If you don't believe that Redeemer East Harlem is a work that you want to invest in or be a part of, then I'd encourage you to maybe go find a church that you do believe in and that you do want to support and be a part of. But I would say, ultimately, as your pastor, I want you to just give generously. Obey the Lord's command to be generous wherever it is that he leads you to give. The last thing that I want to say is I've talked about how it's a command. Giving is a command. Generosity is a command. There are some things that we should think about as we think about giving. But the last thing that I want to say is not only do I want us to consider what we give, but more importantly, I want us walking out of here thinking about why we are giving. What is the reason why we are called to be generous 
Because I'll be frank with you, I have zero desire to make anyone feel guilty about giving. I have zero desire to even convince anyone that they ought to give. That's never the way that I want any of us to ever pursue obedience to anything that God calls us to do. So why then ought we give? Ought we to give? Well, while the New Testament is clear uh, that the new standard of giving is giving, giving is sacrificial and we ought to be a generous people, the New Testament also is very clear about why we should give. And it's not because you have an obligation to me, it's not because you have an obligation to this church or to each other, but rather the reason why we give is actually in verse 3 of our passage. If you have it there in front of you, look at verse 3. It says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And here it is. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that, they, that there was no needy person among them. Do you catch the reason why they were so generous? The reason for their generosity was the grace of God at work in them through the work of Jesus, period. It's the only reason we give, because of the grace of God. You know, in 2 Corinthians 8, again, I've referenced 2 Corinthians quite a bit, but in 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verse 5 tells us that those that had given, they first gave themselves to the Lord, which as a result then led them to be sacrificially generous. It was an outflow of their commitment to Jesus and his mission in the world. That's the reason why they gave. And you know, I said earlier that Christians are not obligated. I don't believe that Christians are obligated by that 10%, the way that Old Testament believers are. I believe that that's true. But I would also say that there is no possible way that we could expect to give less than that. Why? Because the Old Testament believers, they gave 10% out of obedience, which was in response to God's goodness to them. Yet at that time, they had not yet experienced the power of the work of Jesus. We have. How then could we conceive of giving less than them now that we have experienced this great grace of God in Christ? It's inconceivable that God would have given us far more in Christ and then expect far less from us. And what is it exactly that he has given? Well, Jesus Christ he lays down all heavenly riches in order to step into our poverty. Jesus Christ on the cross sacrifices himself for us so that we might have life. In his resurrection, he gives us hope that everything that he says about his kingdom is true. And those who trust in him will one day experience the full restoration of all creation. He has done much for us and so out of love for, this, uh, for him and for this great grace that he's given to us, then we give our lives to service to him. We obey him however he commands. And yes, we give our gifts as acts of worship. And you know, it's at least worth noting that God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our resources to accomplish the work that he seeks to accomplish in the world. You know, but back to Matthew 6 and Jesus' words. Jesus, he says that where our, our treasures lie, so also our heart is. And the power of that is that wherever we give our resources, wherever our treasures are, so there is our heart. And God wants our hearts. 
And so it's important just to say when we give, it's an expression of love and worship to him. For no other reason we should give. Our obedience and our reliance on him and our giving then should not be compulsion, but rather gratitude and joy. That is the posture we ought to have as we give. And giving is just one of the ways that we love and worship him. Of course, he calls us to give our whole lives to him. But if we ever give because we feel obligated or we feel guilty, I'll tell you what, if you've ever given from that posture, you will always give begrudgingly and you will always look for the least amounts that you could possibly get by to give. But when we give in response to an abundance, the abundance of God's grace, the abundant generosity of God, the abundant sacrificial love of God in Christ, we will then become generous, sacrificial givers. So, is today about giving? Yes. Do I hope and pray that you take seriously and consider what it means to be generous? Yes. But more than that, I want us to walk away today reflecting on the love of God in Christ, the love that God has shown you. Because until that captivates your heart, we'll never be generous people. We'll never be the kind of generous people God wants us to be. And so remember the goodness of God in Christ and live a life in response to that, including a life of generosity. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for, for your generosity. We thank you for your sacrificial love in Jesus. And God, I pray that this whole topic of generosity and giving, it would not be something uncomfortable for us. God, we wouldn't give begrudgingly or we wouldn't give in hopes that maybe we'll get something in return. I, I don't know, whatever the reasons might be. But God, we would see giving and generosity simply a response to your great grace. May it cause us to worship you. May our hearts soar as we give. For we know that all that we have has ultimately been given by you. And so as we give in response, as we give as an act of worship, we trust that it would cause our hearts to overflow with love and gratitude for you. But also we, we ask that for those who give, that you would use those resources for the glory of your name in our church, in our neighborhood, in the organizations that you might lead others to give to, wherever it is that they give, God, would you be glorified in those places? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.